0: Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. For more information, visit VintageChurchNola.com. Here is this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church, and we are continuing our series called Prosperous, right? Talking about money. How many of you love money? Don't raise your hands. That's not a good thing to be proud of, right? Kidding. We think about money, we talk about money, we work for money, we spend money. The Bible has a lot to say about money. And I think the reason the Bible has a lot to say about money is not because of money itself. But there's something about money, we talked about this last week, there's something about money that says something about our hearts. And I think, more than anything, that's the reason the Bible talks so much about money. We're continuing our series. Like I said, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, lift up your hand. Our Connect team would love to get you a copy of God's Word as our gift from us to you. And I want to remind you of a couple of resources we have out at our Resource Center The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. This is a, you can see, for those of you who don't like to read, look at how small this book is. I can promise you, that you will enjoy this book. It's a helpful book. It really speaks to the heart of giving and the heart of generosity. The other book that uh, is really great as well is called The Money Challenge by Art Rayner. And this book is super practical. It talks about uh, getting out of debt, saving. It talks about living a generous lifestyle. And so both of those resources are out at our resource center. Last week... We looked at 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 5 and the big idea that I wanted you to get was that God prospers us not for greed but for generosity. God prospers us not for greed but for generosity. And this week I want you to think about a story that I've I've recently heard about. There was a guy And this guy was born into quite a bit of money. And so he had a, um, when he grew up and when he turned 18, he had a pretty large sum of money that he was able to invest. And here's the thing. The incredible thing was, is he did all of the right stuff with his money. He invested it right. And as he invested it right, he made more and more and more and more money. And as he made more and more money, money, he kept investing it into more and more things. And then not only was he investing all of that money, but then he recognized, hey, I've got quite a bit of resource that I can spend, that I can use. So he had a home, he had a car, and then he upgraded, and he got a better home, and he got a better car, and then he got two homes, and then he got two cars, and then he had all of the stuff that he wanted in life. And as he got all of that stuff, he kept thinking about, okay, how can I invest this? How can I make more money? Because I'm, th- at this point, he's only like 40, 45 years old. He's not that old. He's probably got half of a life left to live. And he's thinking, I need to keep investing so I have more. Then all of a sudden, tragedy hit. And overnight, the man has a heart attack and he dies. And all of his money Means nothing. Now, here's the crazy thing about that story. That's probably a recent story, but it's also at least 2,000 years old. Because Jesus told a very similar parable about the rich fool who was very prosperous and he had all of this land and his crops grew and grew and grew and he had a barn that he kept everything in and the stuff that he had outgrew the barn. So what did he do? He built bigger barns. And it's interesting, in Luke 12, Jesus shares this parable and at the end of the parable, this is what Jesus says. He says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? And the end of this passage in verse 21 is really the point that Jesus is getting at. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now what I'm going to tell you is I think that's exactly what Paul is going to show us this morning in 2 Corinthians 8 Starting in verse 6. Here's the big idea that I want you to get this morning. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself, that is for God, and for others around us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 6. Paul writes this, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech, in knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The question that I want us to think about this morning, that I think Paul answers for us, is why should we prosper? Why should we prosper? And the first thing that I want us to see this morning, the reason, one of the reasons that we should prosper is because our generosity proves our love. Our generosity proves our love. Go back and look at verses 6 through 8. I'm going to point out some language to you that I think is very important in this passage. Accordingly, we urged Titus. Titus was a pastor and a travel companion of Paul. And so Titus was being sent back to the Corinthians for this collection. And so he had started this collection a year prior, and so he's coming back. So accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Remember that last week? The word grace, charis, is used over and over again. Paul is saying this collection is an act of grace. Of grace, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And look at verse 8. I say this not as a command. So Paul, listen. Paul has the authority. He's the apostle Paul, for crying out loud. Jesus appeared to him, risen. Paul could say, listen, you're going to listen to me, people. I'm telling you. Collect. Give, be generous. What does he say? Verse eight, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. What Paul is saying is, listen, we, God prospers us, God gives us resource that we can prove that our love is genuine. Our generosity proves our love. And what's interesting in this passage is some of the context that comes out in this passage. Don't forget, this is 2 Corinthians. Do you know what that means? Not a trick question. There was a first, right? There's a 1 Corinthians. And so this isn't the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And there's some stuff that comes out regarding grace and gifts. Look at what Paul says in this passage. That they were excelling in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in other things. If you go and look at 1 Corinthians 1.5, part of the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what does he say? In every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. The Corinthians were gifted people. They had all of the physical gifts. They had all the natural gifts. They had all of the spiritual gifts. They even had all of the money. And Paul is saying, look, you guys are incredibly gifted people. Look at, if you go back and you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through chapter 14, you're going to see three entire chapters of Paul talking about spiritual gifts. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, right? The word gifts comes from the word for grace, charis. Right here, charis, that word is grace. Charismata is gifts. And it's interesting that those spiritual gifts come from grace, charis. So the the Corinthians are very gifted. Why are they gifted? Because God has gifted them. And here's the incredible thing. You have heard this passage preached and said over and over and over again. And many times when you hear it, it's at a wedding. First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not what? Have not what? Love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not what? Love. I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not what? I gain nothing. You see, the whole point that Paul is trying to make in regard to their use of their gifts is it doesn't matter if you're the most gifted person in the world but do not have love. Because who cares about your gift if you're using it not to demonstrate love? And what he's trying to get at here in 2 Corinthians 8 is, listen, your love will be proven by your generosity. If you say you love other people, if you say you love the church at Jerusalem, you're going to demonstrate that love. You're going to prove that love to me, to us, to everyone by your generosity. Here's the thing, right? This is not a foreign idea. We would, Christian or not, we would all agree that that's true, right? There's a song that I love. There's an artist that I love, John Mayer. Any John Mayer fans in the room? You're going, I know you're thinking, what in the world are we doing talking about John Mayer in church? I don't think John Mayer's a Christian, but I don't know. But there's a song that he wrote. Why is that funny? There's a song that he wrote several years ago called Love is a Verb. Listen to these lyrics, it's on the screen. Love is a verb, it ain't a thing. It's not something you hold, it's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing, love is a verb, right? Now listen, John Mayer's not a Christian, yet he writes these lyrics Why? Because he gets at the idea that love is not just something that you say, but love is something you do. Love is something you show. Love is something you demonstrate. And that's not, listen, that's not a foreign idea to our world. So if it's not foreign to our world, it shouldn't be foreign to the church. Paul says our generosity proves our love. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. So why should we prosper? Yes, our generosity proves our love. But the second thing that I want you to see is in verse 9, our generosity imitates Jesus' love. Look at what he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In Paul's letters and in the Bible, there's this idea of substitutionary atonement, where Jesus substituted himself for us. And in this passage, that's what we see. Right, And Paul is using the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, as an example for generosity. So Jesus is our substitute. He was rich, and we were poor. Now, get at what Paul is trying to say here. He's not talking about material wealth, right? He's using this as an illustration. It's a a metaphor. Jesus was rich, we are poor. Jesus substituted himself. Jesus became poor that we might be rich. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 2. A lot of church, uh, a lot of scholars, New Testament authors, uh, New Testament scholars and commentaries, commentators believe that this was an early church hymn, that the early church would have sang this about Jesus. And I think it shows us what Paul is trying to say in 2 Corinthians 8-9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to hold on to or cling to. But what did Jesus do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus, who was rich, who is God, became poor by putting on flesh, dwelling among men, being hated and ridiculed and ultimately, ultimately being led to the cross to die for our sins. Right? That, is that not the story of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that, that message, the gospel of Jesus, the thing that you say, that you believe in, that you would say has saved you, that message is the reality of why we are to be generous. Here's what's incredible, right? Go back to verses 1 through 5 that we talked about last week. What was the example that the Corinthians were to follow? It was the Macedonian church, right? Paul lifted up this church and said, listen, these people are poor. They've got literally nothing, yet they're being generous. And now Paul is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Jesus juking them, right? I mean, they could say, they could give all of the all of the excuses in all of the world. And Paul says, yeah, but Jesus. Oh, dang. Right? And that's, that's the point here that, that Paul is trying to get at. The Macedonians were a great example for the Corinthians to follow, but the greater, the better, the most significant example that the Corinthian church could look to to see what generosity looks like is the example of Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, he became poor, and because he became poor, we who were poor would become rich. Amen? Amen? That's what it looks like to practice generosity. So, how do we imitate the love of Jesus? We live generously. Time, money, energy, resources, life, it's not ours. In fact, we should think about our lives in this sense, that we who have become rich might, like Jesus, become poor, that other people around us might become rich. Why should we prosper? Because we've been called to imitate the generosity of Jesus. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. So why should we prosper? The third thing that I think Paul says, he's talking about proving our generosity proves our love. Our generosity imitates the love of Jesus. Third, our generosity fulfills our love. Look at verses 10 through 11. There's a lot of, again, key words in in these two verses that I think are so significant for you and I. So he's getting back to the collection. Imitate Jesus. And by the way, this is what you're supposed to be doing. In this matter, I give my judgment. Remember, he's not forcing. He's not commanding. He's simply saying, I think that this is what you should do. This benefits you who a year ago started, keep that word in mind, started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Keep that word in mind. So now, finish, keep that word in mind, doing it as well so that your readiness, keep that in mind, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, do you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, listen, it started out as a desire. You had a desire. No one, including myself, forced you to want to be generous to these churches. No one. You had the desire in and of yourselves. And not only did you have the desire, but you were ready. You were ready, willing, and able to be generous. And so what he says is there's a desire, there's a readiness, and because of the desire and the readiness, you actually started to take up the collection. You actually begun to be generous. But something, we don't know, something happened. And the desire and the readiness and the starting waned. And the collection stopped. And now what Paul is saying here is that If you say, again, it's proving your love, right? If you say that you love these people, then allow your generosity to fulfill your love. Complete what you desired. Finish what you started, right? The Corinthians had started. They were excited. They were ready. They had begun to take up. And then by the end of that year, for whatever reason, they had stopped. It's like New Year's resolutions. How many of you had a New Year's resolution this year? Well, Be bold. Raise your hand. Right? You had a New Year's resolution. How many of you kept the resolution through January? Okay. Through March? Yeah, most, right? Don't look at the hands around the room if you want to be encouraged right now, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing about New Year's resolutions, right? We start them. We're excited about them, but by... The end of January to maybe Valentine's Day, we're like, ah, eh, done. I don't feel like doing this anymore. Our our completion of New Year's resolutions are very much like what the Corinthians were doing with their generosity. One author and commentator says this: giving may start as a response of the heart. Which is true, right? What did I say last week? Generosity is not about money, it's about the heart, and that's true. But it must move on to an act of the will. If the Corinthians do not finish the work, then in the final analysis, all of their good intentions amount to nothing. Now, let me change the language there a little bit, right? If vintage church does not finish the work, then in the final analysis, all of our good intentions amount to nothing. That's the thing about generosity. It begins in the heart. There's a desire, there's a willingness, there's a readiness. But if we don't complete the work, if we don't finish the work, Then our generosity has no opportunity to fulfill the love that we have within our hearts. So, how do we match our love with generosity? Last week we talked about the generosity ladder. And I bring it out again because I think it's such a helpful tool for us to think about giving. We begin giving. How do you match your love with generosity? You begin giving. Right? When we talk about giving at vintage, we talk about the generosity ladder that if you've never given before, then you have to become a giver. Right. So if you have a desire and a love for something or someone, you have to begin somewhere. You have to begin giving. Now here's the thing. After you begin giving, then you create margin to be more generous. Now listen, that might for you sound like backwards, Wouldn't you create margin to then begin giving? If you do that, you will never start giving. The most important thing that you can do to be generous is simply begin to be generous. And the thing about generosity is once you are generous with a little, God will expand your heart to not be generous with a little, but be generous with a lot. And as you're generous with a lot, you're going to have to work to create margin in your budget to be more generous. We talked about that last week, right? If you cut a Starbucks drink a week, if you cut eating out one meal per month, if you cut your cable, I mean, you're literally saving $1,500 to $2,000 a year. So for those of us who look at our budget right now, and if we looked at our budget, we have no margin to be generous. We've got to begin to create margin to become generous. So we begin giving, we create margin to be more generous, and then we make our giving regular. That's the thing about generosity. If you go back and you look at 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul first tells the Corinthians to be generous, to begin this collection, he literally says, every week set aside a portion of your income. There's a reason for that, because generosity should be regular. When you make generosity a regular part of your life, it's not something that's separate, but it's part of who you are. And the point that Jesus was making that I shared at the beginning of that parable is that generosity in the life of a Christian should be a regular part of who they are. It's a part of our DNA. It's a part of our identity. It's a part of who we are. So when we talk about giving, we begin to give. And listen, when you get up here to being intentional or faithful, where you're setting aside 3%, 5%, 10% of your income, what you have done is you're not looking in your back pocket saying, hey, I've got a 20, I'll give them a 20. But what you've done is you've created margin in your budget to where you've said, I can set aside 5% of my income. I can set aside 10% of my income. When you become an extravagant giver, which is what I think the New Testament speaks of. Someone last week asked me about tithing. Tithing, the word tithe is 10%. percent—and In the Old Testament, it talks about tithing. That the people of Israel would set aside 10% of what they have to give back to the temple, to support the priests and to support the temple. I don't think that tithing is a New Testament concept. The reason I don't think tithing is a New Testament concept is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus, who was rich, became what? Poor. That you and I, who are poor, might become What? How much did Jesus give? Everything. You see, the the idea and the concept in the New Testament of giving is generosity. Why? Because God owns everything that we have. God owns us. We are gods. So we create margin in our lives that we can give more and that we can give regularly. That's the significance of matching our love or fulfilling our love with our generosity. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. Last thing that I want you to see in this passage is in verses 12 through 15. Why should we prosper? Because our generosity enables us to love look at verses 12 through 15 for if the readiness is there right the corinthians they had started they had desired they were ready paul says it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have for i do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So how does generosity enable us to love? Number one, I think this, it enables us to love proportionally. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What did I say last week? Generosity, biblical giving is not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Why? Because not every single one of us has the same amount of resource that we all have. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. It's not about equal giving. The Macedonians are not going to be able to give what the Corinthians are able to give. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, this is what Paul says. He says, on the first day of every week, remember what I said about regular giving? That's what Paul is saying there. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, I looked this week because I don't think that's as clear as it could be. So the NIV says it like this. Not as you prosper, but in keeping with your income. Right? So if some of you are students, my assumption is your income is a lot less than someone who has a full-time job. So your giving, your generosity is going to look different than the person who has a full-time job. Why? Because your income is different. Look at how the message paraphrases that little section. Be as generous as you can. And I actually think that that's the point. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. like, Listen, if you have a lot of money, you are able to be far more generous because you have more of it. If you have less, you're able to be generous, but you just simply have less to give. But the whole point, right, is this idea of collective generosity, that the church, that God has brought every single one of us together to be a part of this family together. So we do different things in the body of Christ, right? I mean, I think about my family, my kids, my daughter just turned five and my son is turning eight in like a month and a half. I can't look at my kids and say, hey, could you go pay the bills? Right, go sit down and pay the bills. I can't I mean they don't even know how to set up automated payment, right? Like that would be the easiest thing. Hey Gabe, can you go get on my Chase and set up automated payment so I can get that bill paid? I'm maybe. I'm scared. Uh, I'm scared, right? I'm not doing I'm not letting him pay my bills. But I'll tell you what I am doing because I hate folding their little tiny clothes because you can put so much of their clothes in the washer and dryer, way more than you can adult clothes. So there's kids clothes everywhere. I'll fold them, but they're going to put them up, right? And so every single one of us in my house of four people, we all do different stuff because God has prospered us or matured us differently, So I don't expect my kids to pay my bills, right? I don't expect them to, you know, make dinner. The same thing is true for us in the church. The point in the church is that God has prospered us all differently. And our generosity is going to look different. Why? Because it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice we give proportionally second how does our generosity enable us to love not only proportionally but reciprocally look at what he says at the end of this passage he says your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness this Listen, this is a reality in my own personal life. There have been moments in my life, in Rachel and I's marriage, when there have been times when we have needed something and we didn't have the resource to do that. People have come alongside and loved us and provided for us. They had an abundance when we had a lack And then there had been moments, and this is what Paul is saying, in our lives where we've had an abundance and other people have had a lack and we've been able to fulfill and supply that need. And that's what it looks like when you are family. And that's the expectation. Here's the incredible thing about this passage, right? Because if you really think about it, could or would the Jerusalem church ever be able to take care of the Corinthians? We don't know for sure, but chances are no. But the point that Paul is making is that this is the way it's supposed to be in the church. That in seasons of abundance, those who have much help those who have little. And there's going to come a season when those who had little have much, and they're able to help those who had a lot who now have little. And again, I think that the the, the power of that comes back to the collective generosity. If every single one of us, I said this last week, if every single one of us who call Vintage Home would be generous with our resources to the ministry of Vintage Church, we would be able to do so much in this city, in the city of Pittsburgh and around the world. And there are going to be seasons in the life of our church where there are some who carry a lot of the weight of our budget. And then there are going to be seasons when there are a lot of people being generous with the little resource that they have. And because of that, they're able to carry our budget. But together, collectively, we are able to do a lot because we are generous, every single one of us, with all that God has given us. When we are able to practice collective generosity, it enables us to love God and love people. And that is the power of generosity. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. So as a recap, why should we prosper? Number one, our generosity, it proves our love. Number two, our generosity imitates Jesus' love. Number three, our generosity fulfills our love. And last, our generosity enables us to love. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and for others. The last thing that you and I need in our lives is to accumulate as much money and stuff as we possibly can and die holding on to it. It's the last thing that we need. God blesses us with a little wealth, with a lot of wealth, whatever that prosperity looks like, that we would love God and love others. So, this morning, I want to challenge us to respond in a few different ways. Number one, we need to thank God for his generosity. Every single thing that we have, whether it's a little or a lot or the breath in our lungs, comes from God. And so, we thank God for his generosity. Number two, we check our hearts. Remember what I said last week generosity isn't about money, it's about your heart. And so if you're struggling to be generous with what you have, perhaps it's not because of how much money you have, but it's because of greed that's in your heart. Check your heart. Number three, take steps to become generous. Whatever that looks like, begin to be generous today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next month. Don't wait till you think when you think you're going to have more money. Be generous now. And then number four, give generously. God prospers us not for ourselves, but for himself and others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your generosity. For the gift of your son Jesus Christ to us, that though he was rich, he became poor. That though we were poor because of his generosity, we might be rich. God, this morning, we just simply thank you for your generosity to us. And Father, I pray for each one of us this morning, God, as we're about to respond to your generosity through your son Jesus Christ. God, that we would check our hearts to see if there is greed in our hearts. And then, God, I pray that we would live lives of generosity. The money that we have, the time that we have, the very life that we have, God, that we would remember that you've given it to us to worship you and to serve others. And so help us this morning, God, to simply love you and love others. We ask all this in Christ's name.